Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. What do you do when people push you beyond your limits? I mean, when you are subjected to child abuse or adult abuse or, oh, my goodness, when you have to deal with traumas that are both spontaneous and a a consequence of nature's randomness or consequence of someone else's horrible traumatic imposition in your life, it's as if they've pushed you beyond your limits. And how do you resurrect yourself out of that? Well, Mary Shores, an author of Conscious Communication and a new book called Dream with a Deadline, is joining us today because of her many experiences along these lines. I don't know exactly where she's going to take us in this conversation. Let's find out. Welcome, Mary Shores. Hello, Dr. Carol. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. And very curious about what you're going to share. I know that in our previous two interviews, You've had some very pithy things to say, very interesting insights. And so where do we begin on this topic of abuse and trauma from your point of view? Yeah, you know, I've got, and I've recently gotten even more information because of a retreat that I just went on that I'm really looking forward to sharing. I'm, I'm going to be a total open book and as vulnerable as I possibly can. Uh, Thank you. With also providing providing as much service and for other people to understand like where to go once they recognize that they have some trauma. First thing I want to mention is I have just been at a four-day, 50-hour Tony Robbins event, and so my voice is a little hoarse, and um, I just ever want everyone to know that ahead of time that my, if my voice is a little scratchy, it's just because of this event. Um, oh, I think anyway, you know, jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, was cool. it was a lot of fun. I watched my 17-year-old son. Um, he got to become a firewalker for the first time. And, you ah. know, the whole walking on fire thing is just, it's just a great metaphor for overcoming your fears. You know, like if I can walk across that fire, you know, I can put my goal, my mental goal on the other side of that pathway to walk through the fire. And then whether that is to heal or whether that's to become a business owner or to lose weight, whatever it is, you put that goal on the other side so that when you walk across that fire, you're really creating a belief system for yourself that you can do that. And so, um, all right, let's talk about trauma. You know, I, this is where I know, want to start. Okay, so Mary, just a moment. I'm thinking that this is also because I think people have to walk across the fire when they are abused and traumatized. And, that, and it's not a voluntary fire that they're walking across. So it's, it's a test that goes even beyond that, that they have survived. Yes, continue. Sure, and even sometimes, you know, it's it's brilliant what you've just said because even like maybe being stuck in the inferno. Yes. You know, so as, as you put that, maybe your goal is to get out of the inferno. So, yeah, that is beautiful. All right, so recently I've gotten an even deeper understanding of trauma, uh, deeper than I've ever had before. And, and uh, what I want to say about this is that trauma – is not necessarily about the event that happened because we've all had a different level of events or there's a spectrum of trauma and it's it's can be very different for each person but trauma is about the way that it shows up in your present day experience so trauma when it happened it happened but it's in the past it's not happening now but that trauma created a deep pattern in your, in your body, in your nervous system, in your neural pathways, in your cellular memory, in your tissues, it's in your body so much that it creates an imprint. And then that imprint is what shows up in your day-to-day present life. And it is making an impact in how you it's making an impact in how you think. It's making an impact in how you behave, what your choices are, who you choose to be around, and your general wellness. And this is very important because if we can start to reach in there and release some of this trauma, then our patterns can change. Do you follow me so far? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, I know you do. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. So... 
one of the things that I feel like I've recently become to understand is our DNA. Now, our DNA is, you know, that, that coded system that really determines molecule by molecule who we are going to become. You know, it's our, it's our genetics. It's passed down from generation to generation. And through, uh, I heard a talk, and the talk was from Dr. Joseph Tafur, who wrote a book called The Fellowship of the River. And what's really special about him is he's an, he's an MD, but he's also a shaman. And uh, after nice. he was going, through, yeah, totally special, right? Because there's not a lot of MD shamans. Um, he, when he was going through his shamanic training, he was shown how we have our DNA, and then we have these what he called looked like dragons to him, and the dragons went and they attached themselves to the DNA. And that meant it became a part of our DNA. Now, we know about this, Dr. Carroll, and guess what we call it? We call it epigenetics, yes. right? We've, mm-hmm. all heard, mm-hmm. we've heard of epigenetics. And so what he was explaining is that the DNA becomes altered through our epigenetics. Now, this can be, again, a spectrum of good things and bad. So when we have a trauma, what happens is that trauma goes into our DNA and it embeds itself, almost like a virus, into the DNA and it, and it changes our gene expression. And the changing of the gene expression, the change in how our genes express themselves you know, how they, they change, that is, the, that is what epigenetics is about. And so what happens from there is as we replicate those cells, you know, when we talk about cellular memory, now it is the damaged DNA that is replicating. Okay. So as we begin to understand more and more in today's world how we know that disease, illness, you know, things are caused from, from our our thought systems and, you know, psychosomatic, that something that happened to you 20 years ago, if it's not dealt with and it represses into the body and it gets into the DNA, it can manifest, excuse me, manifest itself 20, 30 years later in, say, fibromyalgia, in an autoimmune disease especially, mm-hmm. because this is this trauma coming back out because it's not been dealt with. So that's what I thought we would talk about today. What do you think? I think that's great. It, yes, and so the, the trauma follows the body as a van, uh, a van cur- expression. The body, the, the body follows the trauma, and that's, that this is a variation of one of the ways in which that would occur. So continue. Okay. So very recently, um, I like three weeks ago, I went to Peru, and I uh. did an ayahuasca retreat. Now, uh, I'm not sure how much of your audience is familiar with ayahuasca, and I'm certainly not telling people to run out there and do it because I researched it for six years prior to doing it. But what I, what I did was I had, during this retreat, which was a very healing retreat, I experienced, I re-experienced the traumas, mm, and yes. they released from my body. And one of mm-hmm. the things that I learned about myself was that early in childhood, pretty much from the time of birth, um, I was without a biological father. So initially I was without a biological father because he was in the Navy, nuclear engineer, brilliant guy, but he was living on a submarine. So in my infancy I was without a father, and then when I was three, my mother and father got divorced, so I was still without a father, and I was sent off to live with relatives because my mother was unstable. When I was, when I was taking the ayahuasca and I was going through this healing journey, my body re-experienced this trauma, and what it was was what it's like to grow up from that age of like birth to, say, six, which is a very important time in life, yes. without ever feeling safe. Hmm. And so I was also shown through this that it created a, a it created a foundation of fear-based thinking. And so I think that I have this opportunity because I'm an extremely successful person. 
And so one might think, well, how did you become successful when you have this foundation of fear-based thinking? And what I learned is that some people who are high achievers get there because of fear-based thinking. It's like you become a high achiever because it's a survival need. And um, I can feel myself like rewiring these patterns now because because that trauma is one of the traumas that came up and out of my body. Mm, wow. Do you care and to describe how that manifested? Yes. Um, it's kind of grueling, but um, um, yes. it was a very painful process. And when it started... Um, I was just feeling my heart because my intention going into ceremony was that I wanted my heart to open up. I wanted to open my heart. And what I didn't understand was that when my heart, it's almost like if my heart was in this um, box, like like a safe, and the safe was locked. And when the ayahuasca unlocked the safe and when it put the key in and unlocked it, in order for my heart to open, all that trauma had to come out. Mm, yes. and, and when the trauma started to come out, at first it was a deep crying. Now, I later came to understand this as a somatic release. And I've been at events, I've been at places where, I mean, even at the Tony Robbins event that I just went at, you know, they did a somatic experience where you remember your traumas and you bring them out and you cry and you grieve. Um, And I've been through all of those experiences, but they never really gave me the full effect. Whereas when I was at this retreat, it was really as if something internal and external, so something like guiding me, but also something from within, began to cry. It was not a conscious decision to cry, but the crying just continued and continued, and it went on for a couple of hours. Hmm. And then from there, the crying turned into suffering. And it was a very physical experience of suffering, and it got worse and worse, and it was literally um, being in pain from head to toe, head Mm -hmm. to toe, physical, physical pain. And what I realized was, because there's a guided, there's a guidance, there's an intelligence behind this process, and what I realized was this is how much this trauma has damaged my body. So this was like 44 years of trauma coming out. And this is why they say that one ayahuasca ceremony is like 10 years of therapy. It was activating all of the damage in my DNA, all of the damage in my, in my cellular, cellular memory, and it was releasing it, and it was a physically painful process. And it just kept getting worse and worse. So after the couple hours of crying, it turned into this very painful physical experience. And what I realized was it was all that pain. It was all of the self-hatred. Because when when you have a background of trauma, I think it's very easy to get into a mindset that you would be better off dead. Like, Mm -hmm. I just can't do this anymore. You know, you start having, and maybe you don't even share it with anyone. I've never shared these thoughts with anybody before. Uh, Dr. Carol, you're literally the first person that I've ever said this out loud to. But there have been times in my life that I was so overwhelmed, that I was so just exhausted with life because I'm running a business, because I'm taking care of children, because I have a special needs child, because I have an ex-husband who who somehow enjoys making my life difficult, that I would literally think, I can't do it anymore. God, if you would just please, you know, uh, if you gave me cancer, then I, I would just, it would just end. You know, because it's not like I wanted to be suicidal, but yet I was in this place where the exhaustion and the overwhelm was at such a high level that I didn't think I could go on anymore. Yes. And that no matter what I tried, it was not going to make any difference. And so this pain that was somatically coming up was showing me this is what you're doing to your body with all of your self-hatred. And that you have to love yourself. You have to have 
absolute unconditional love for yourself, even the parts of yourself that you think are terrible, that you think are causing the problem, you have to fall in love with those pieces too. And I realized by the end of this very somatic journey that um, I was making myself sick. I was causing a lot of the physical grief and the physical pain that I was going through because of my patterns, because of what I was attracting into my life. Hmm. Interesting. Can, can you differentiate between? I mean, I'm gonna, can I play the role of a skeptic for a moment? And really, it's just yes, to please. get the discussion going. It's not that I'm skeptical by any means. I've been to Prue myself a couple of times. Uh, but it, can you discuss knowing that this has to do with the trauma versus the excessive amount of stress that you were enduring? Um, can that you? Is, just, that is yeah. such a great question. So, a couple of things were happening. Um, number one, I think that during an ayahuasca experience, you're releasing a massive amount of DMT. And the DMT, which is, uh, let me see if I get this chemical right, dimethyltryptamine. Oh, I, oh very well done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this is creating a very deep connection with some type of universal knowledge. You know, call it God, call it your spirit guides, call it another dimension. I mean, somehow you just know. And I would be very confused by an experience in the beginning, but I would also be guided through and I would be I would be told, communicated with and shown what it was about. So, I just understood and so it's, it's a really great question, and I wish that I had, because I'm a very scientifically-minded person, mm-hmm. I wish that I had a scientific answer to give you, but um, in my experience, from what I experienced and the group that I was with on the retreat, it was very much the same thing with them, that they just had an understanding of what was going on. And then we also had our Kirandero, and we had the uh, retreat facilitators there that also understood because they were trained and so they could lead us and integrate us through the experience. Hmm. I don't really think that this would have a scientific answer because it is a subjective experience. It, it is subjectively. I, I agree. You know, subjectively, you may have even been putting yourself in the excessive, excessively stressful schedule, not only because you want to be successful, but also because of your fear, as you mentioned, I think that individuals that they, they suggest, the statistics suggest that about 30% of the individuals that go through trauma and abuse actually produce about 75% of our great performers. So that 75% of the people that are amazing on this planet are overcomers or recoverers or transformers. And what you're also suggesting is that they're also running on the fuel of Fear that causes them to have to put a lot of exertion into life that leads to them being quite successful. So what do you think of that analysis? <laughs> I think it's just like what I was describing. Um, and, you know, to go back a second ago when we were saying, like, how did, how did I know, like, what was happening to me during the experience? Um, I did recently, when I was doing some research for a project I'm working on, I saw some research that shows the scans of the brain while people are um, taking ayahuasca, and it's lighting up a lot of areas of the brain that are not lit up during normal consciousness, like normal waking consciousness. Hmm. So it is going into some deep regions of the brain. I don't remember which ones and what they're called, but it is going and um, waking up certain areas of the brain. And what's interesting is it's waking up lots of areas of the brain at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that one center of the brain is, is being activated. It's multiple centers at the same time. It, it, it's, a, it, it's an interesting thing to suggest that ayahuasca might help individuals recover from their trauma. So in the week's, subsequent to this powerful experience, which I know we have more to discuss, have you noticed a difference inside yourself, subjectively speaking? So I've only been home for a week, and what I have noticed is I feel like 
the outer shell is crackling open. Hmm. You know, that, that outer shell or that, that outer wall is sort of, um, it's starting to crack. And that's a very good thing. I would also say, and if anyone, if any of the audience has this thing where their thoughts are always going and, you know, always thinking it's, it makes it difficult to meditate because your thoughts are just always bombarding you, that that mind chatter or that monkey mind is just completely gone. Huh. And so what, that, what is that like inside yourself to not have that noisy companion? Well, it's, it's a little strange because I'm not used to it. I, <laughs> I think, uh, oh, I'm not thinking about anything right now. That's odd. It just doesn't, it's just not occupying me. And then also right when I got home, I had a situation with my son that was uh, like pretty stressful. It had to do with his uh, a situation with a class of his at college. And I felt myself handling that situation very differently than I would have in the past. So instead of going into 100% fight or flight, instead of having that level 10 reaction, I really kept it at a level 2. Did you do anything different at that level 2? I believe I did everything different at that level 2. So I was much less controlling so I think in the past, um, my CEO personality is very controlling and very much um, in fixer mode, where I I still went into solution mode, but I wanted him to independently take ownership and commit to solving the problem himself instead of me doing it for him. And this is a challenge because I'm a, because he's special needs, he's on the autism spectrum, and I am used to stepping in and being the one that fixes things. I'm very, very curious uh, about how this is going to unfold in the months ahead. And I get the impression that you feel like on some level the DNA, even maybe the neuropathways inside your cerebral cortex or even your cerebellum, your your primitive brainstem, that you get the impression that your brain has actually changed. Is that the way it feels? Yeah, absolutely. And I would, you know, I was just thinking about that DNA again and the epigenetics. If we pictured a strand of DNA that had like cockleburrows all stuck in it, you know, those little things yes. you get stuck to your clothing when it's when it's when you're out in the woods. Yes. I feel like all of my traumas in life, which I've had numerous, and I know, you know, if the audience goes back and listens to an old show, my daughter has passed away when I was 20. I was out on my own at 16. So there has been like this history of trauma in my life. And I know we didn't really cover that today, but just just so you know, there are a couple of other shows you could go and listen to. I feel like those cockleburls have been one at a time with tweezers pulled off of me. Huh. That okay. and so now I'm going through life without that, without those cockleburls. Hmm. I would think you'd be a little confused. Like those have been reference those have been reference points inside you. Those have been motivators or uh uh caused you to do certain things in certain ways and now they're no longer causative. I would think you'd feel a little confused. A little and, disoriented. And, you know, sure, it is that, and it's also the most clarity I've had in a very long time. Mm. So can you be in both a confused and a clear in a clarity state at the same time? Well, how about this? How about you're clear, you're clear, but this is unfamiliar. Mm. Right, and you know what? There is a lot of uncertainty because... When you're in a period where you know that change is imminent, the fear can be the uncertainty because you don't really know the outcome. And so, right. but because my, because my foundational neural pathways are changing from that fear-based thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm embracing the uncertainty and I just have this inner knowing that everything is okay. And I plan to give myself plenty of time and space to integrate 
my experience, not just with the ayahuasca, but all of the things that I've done over the years. Like it's all part of the plan. I mean, Dr. Carroll, I went so deep with my experience that, I mean, I, I went something like seven dimensions away from here. And how did you know? Well, I mean, I knew this was not during the ceremony that I had the somatic release, but I knew because I had the symbolic um, near-death experience. So you sound a little second, hesitant. Yes, mm-hmm. keep going. <laughs> well, I'm hesitant because I just don't know what you want me to talk about or not want me to talk about. But yes, okay. I, <laughs> I'm going to free you up just a little bit. It's so interesting to me that this would be the, the – I had no idea that this would be the angle that our conversation would do. I, too, am shamanically trained and was trained for 20 years. Uh, so it's not – it's not outside the realm. And even last night, I had, a, I had two dreams that specifically had little dragons in them. And they were nasty little critters. And they were aggressive and toxic and threatening. And I woke up from both of those dreams saying, oh, my goodness, this is like having an ayahuasca experience. <laughs> so it was so interesting to hear you say that you had this ayahuasca experience and hear here I just had these dreams that I woke up from just a few hours ago. Um, and and I, here I, I am I'm, talking mm-hmm. about dragons. Mm-hmm. That's exactly <laughs> That's so right. Interesting. So, so I think that I'd really like you. Go ahead. If you feel free sure. to go ahead and describe this experience, because there will be individuals that will think about using different types of psychedelics, as we call them, from the 60s or mind-altering drugs, and that's not always a safe alternative, and it's not something that in my field as a psychologist I would ever recommend, but it is something that's within the realm of a shamanic process and definitely within the realm of a recovery work. So I think that since we have you and this is your experience, would you be as open as you want to be public? Sure. Okay. So during my second ceremony, I was given the I was given the ayahuasca, and I was in a very safe environment. I just want to say that right off the bat, I was in a very very safe environment at a top rated retreat center, and I was with a friend of mine who's a documentary filmmaker who had made a documentary about ayahuasca. So I felt number one very safe in my environment and I drank the brew and about an hour later as the experience began to take hold and of course I'm not understanding what's happening to me it's just sort of like you have to constantly surrender to the experience you have to you have to give in and and the best thing is not to to fight it which would make sense to someone if they've had this experience because as things start to physically happen to you you don't really understand them so there can be some fear there because you're not in control anymore and what happened was my my body began to disintegrate molecule by molecule and literally fragment and fly off into the into the jungle until the point where I became part of the jungle. I became when people say um, when people say they meditate and they can become a drop in the ocean. I, I literally experienced that, and I began to have a death. I began to 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 have some sort of now, I wasn't in any actual physical medical danger. I just want to make that clear because it can be confusing to to describe something like this. But I went through a near-death experience, and the best thing that I could describe is that it was as if, and I don't know much about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but I definitely felt like I was going through the the, the, the realms of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So there was the experience I died and then I was going to like another dimension and I'd be in that dimension and then I would go on to another dimension. And I, and by the way, each time I was in these dimensions, to me, it was an eternity. So I would go to that dimension and then I would go to another dimension. And I went so far removed in these dimensions that there was no longer a frame of reference to human. Like I had no understanding that I was human, that I had ever been human, or that I would ever be human again, or even that there was a such thing as a human. And yet you had some sort of personal identity. So I had an awareness. I had, a, okay. I had an awareness. I had a, a, maybe some sort of witness experience or some sort of observing experience. I had a consciousness, but I don't recall 
having an identity. Like I didn't, I didn't have a body. I didn't have a name. I didn't have, like, I didn't even remember the names of my children at this point. And again, if you're hearing this, this sounds really, really uh, crazy. I know, but this was all a necessary experience for me to, to have a symbolic ego death. What were the different and, dimensions like? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question. So when you are in these other realms, when you're in these other dimensions, you know, time is very different and time is very distorted. So there was um, different dimensions that I was in. I was in a dimension where I still understood human. And if I even had, uh, as an observer, if I had some sort of inkling of another human, say like my son, I would instantly feel all of his emotions. So there's this very interconnectedness. When people talk about oneness, there's this very um, interesting thing that I don't know why, and as a shaman, you probably understand this way more than me, but I think that our bodies in ancient times used to produce naturally more DMT and that we felt that oneness. And that in today's society, we have so many distractions and we have such an unhealthy diet that we no longer feel that interconnectedness of oneness. But in this other dimension, I not only felt the oneness with with every human being on the planet, but if I focused on, say, my son, I could feel his, his consciousness. And I also could see the bioplasmic streamers of energy coming off of people. So like when people, shamans, you know, Reiki masters, they'll talk about cords. Yes. I could, I could see those. Um, I could see only the utter beauty of whatever individual I was, that I was focused on. It was really, really interesting. And then I would go into a deeper dimension and I could literally see thoughts turn into matter. And what was that like? I could describe. <laughs> um, it was incredible. It was not, um, I guess, you know, if I had to say the colors were and the magic and the mystery would be something like the first time you ever saw the movie Avatar, where there's okay. just lights, every, lights everywhere and and energetic streamers and just, you know, unconditional love and interconnectedness. And so, and it's also very healing. And then eventually as I was going through this experience um, and I was able to see that when I sent someone love, you know, when they'll say this, the, the saying send someone light or send someone love or send someone healing, I could see that when you set that intention, I could see the, how the bioplasmic streamers come off of you and travel to the other person, mm-hmm. which was really, really interesting. Yes, and then right. I was, eventually I was given a choice to come back. So like the classic near-death experience where you're given a choice, um, I was given a choice to come back. And when that happened, I began to have some sort of somatic rebirth experience, which I did not understand much at all, but I just felt my body beginning to give birth. Wow. And moving through the birth canal, and here's where it gets really strange, because I was giving birth to myself. Hmm. Cool. And I was going through a healing at the same time, and I had this understanding, like, if you're going to come back, then you need to be healed. And I was going through this body scan, and the spirit in the ayahuasca was going through and healing me. Now, here's something interesting. When I got back, before I left, um, I've been working with a chiropractor for several years, and he has me wear a heel lift that is about an inch thick, which is very thick for a heel lift. And the reason he's doing that is because my left leg is positioned about one inch shorter. Now, it's not that my bones are actually shorter. It's that my hip is tilted. So my hip is tilted in a way that my left hip is an inch higher than my right hip, which causes an imbalance. And so in order to correct this, he's given me this heel lift. And when I got back and I went to my massage therapist, I said, I want to know if you notice anything different. And right away she said, your hips are balanced. 
And oh, I thought, well, that's very interesting. So I went to my chiropractor and I said, I don't think I need this heel lift anymore. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, you're right. So wow. I, whatever was causing emotionally, whatever was causing my hips to contort in the way that they were had been released from my body. Hmm. So I was think no was, longer holding myself was, in that position anymore. Do you think that was during the rebirth, or you have no idea? I think it was um, in the rebirth. I was doing some sort of strange kundalini shape-shifting where my body and my spine was moving in all these really strange uh strange movements and it was almost as if I was like growing back into my body but as I was receiving the healing I actually felt a lot of twitching in my hip and I even had that thought oh I think they're healing my hip Hmm. who were the they that were healing it I really don't know okay um I really, because I didn't see them, but I had an understanding that they were there. To me, it felt very, uh, like, vibration. Oh, this is just beautiful. Now, what happened after the rebirth? You're birthing yourself. Well, I had to learn how to walk again. So I was literally an infant for a while, and I had to, I had to learn how to walk again. And, and you know... As a shaman, have you ever done any study about babies where they talk about babies are here, but they're also still in the other dimension? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I experienced that, and it was very confusing because I was both in the other dimension and I was here. And after the rebirth, I found it very strange to be in a body. And my mind was not as the mind of a 44-year-old mother of two who's a CEO and a best-selling author, I literally had this mind of an infant that didn't understand. I didn't understand my body. I didn't understand my surroundings. And I had to learn how to move. And I would hear this inner voice that would say something like, you need to drink water. And then it would say, and it was like every little every little motion that we take for granted, you know, if you want a drink of water, you just pick up your cup and you drink a drink of water. But for me, it was very much like you need to drink. You're dehydrated. You need to drink some water. And then it would say, look at the water. And then it would say, move your hand towards the water. Pick up the water put the water, I mean, it was, I was giving these, um, for every action you take, I was given like a 16-step map of instructions. Hmm. And it was very much one little thing at a time. And then a, a, a facilitator came over, and he had to help me learn how to walk. I mean, it was interesting because the first time I went to the restroom, I really felt like I was learning toilet training and there was all this celebration of, yay, you did it. And I know this sounds just like completely bizarre and out there, but it when I went through that rebirth, there was this whole experience of being on the other side and being here at the same time and it was very confusing. Mhm. In a pleasant way. It was not it was not scary. It was it was it was a moment of awe. There's that 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 dynamic again of being clear, but confused, and um, hmm. keep going. I'm reluctant hmm. to interrupt you here. Keep going. I go as far as you want to go. What was your near death so, experience uh, like, perhaps? Okay. Well, there was some scary parts to that um, because. I didn't die just one time. It was like I died a thousand deaths. And I got stuck in a little bit of a glitch. The best thing I can do is describe it as a glitch in the matrix or a glitch in glitch in reality, um, a glitch in consciousness where I was experiencing the same sequence of events over and over again, um, like thousands of times. It was like the movie Groundhog Day. 
Yes. Where the sequence of events was just just replaying in my mind and as I was going through these death scenarios it was like a death that I had died 10 years ago and I just didn't realize that I was stuck in this moment of that I had died but I didn't know I was dead and that it was you know taking me taking me elsewhere because I had been stuck in this this um, in between and and as a shaman I know so I would call this like a lifeline you know where people who rescue souls come in and they find the the soul that is stuck in that moment of death. So I experienced something along that line, and then I would experience another death. I experienced a death as an elderly person. I experienced a death as that I was actually dying right now here in the present. And there was just so many deaths. So it's like I went through this journey of dying a thousand times. And the the thing about an experience with DMT, we release DMT or they believe that we release DMT during our sleep state while we're dreaming. And so if you know how it is when you wake up in the morning, you, you might be very clear about what your dream was the night before. And then as your day goes on, you know, you have your cup of coffee, you start to go about your day, then maybe you just remember a glimpse of that dream. And then, you know, unless the dream was super impactful, you know, a week later, you probably don't remember that dream at all. And so this experience is very much like that, whereas you have this profound experience, but when you begin to come back, that experience begins to fade. Yes. One of the things, one of the things that I, I definitely remember the strongest is when I was given that choice to come back, I, I, was, um, I was shown the choices that I made prior to this life. So I was shown, they were like, I just heard this singing and it was going, remember, remember, remember. We want you to remember that you chose this gift. You chose to have a gift of extreme high intelligence and you chose to come in here with this universal knowledge and that that is the reason why you are a seeker. That is the reason why you do the things you do because you came into this life with a mission to share universal knowledge. And that was a very cool experience for me. Yes. Because it gave me the confidence to know that the things that I write about in my books, the things that I write about empowerment, um, the, the things that I share, especially with other women, you know, empowerment has become this huge buzzword lately. And empowerment, whenever we have a buzzword, I think sometimes we lack the meat or the definition of what it truly means. And so I like to give my own definitions to things. So I've said recently, you know, empowerment is the state of being where you understand inside, outside, backwards and forwards what it is that you need, want, and, and you at least know the very beginning steps of how to move in that de- general direction. You might not have the full plan, but you feel confident of the direction you need to move. And the importance of empowerment is that everything you manifest from a place of empowerment is going to show up stronger, faster, better. It's going to be longer lasting and more impactful. And the impact is the important thing. That is that is the, the biggest gift is this impact that the empowerment makes on you. And then we have the, the flip side of empowerment, which is a state of being of disempowerment. Now, disempowerment is when you feel like you're just absolutely broken, you're stuck, you have no idea what to do, and it's a very desperate feeling. And what I think is that when you're in a state of disempowerment, the thing to do is not manifest. Don't force yourself to manifest because anything you manifest from a place of disempowerment is going to be stressful, chaotic, and it might make a negative impact on your life. And it definitely feels like you're trying to tread upstream or you're trying to walk through mud. And it's something's constantly holding you back. And the way that you figure this out is if you ask yourself, how well am I feeling from a scale of 1 to 20? And if you rate yourself anything below a 10, this is the time for self-care. 
And self-care doesn't have to be this confusing thing. It can literally just mean taking time for yourself, closing your circle in maybe for a day or two until you get above that 10. And the moment you get above a 10, that's when you start feeling that sort of vibrant life again. And when you get maybe to a 13, that's when it's time to take action. How did this relate to the travels and and your your process in, in Peru? Well, the way that it related is that I understood that this information that comes through me and I and that I share on podcasts and in my book and on my my own channels and the things that I do, I understood that this really is how the power of manifestation works. And I understood it was almost like I was given this giant permission slip to say yes. This is so important because the ripple effect of what you're doing is waking other people up. It's healing other people. So the the experience that I was going through when I was shown how I was making these choices prior to my life was to understand and to give me the confidence that absolutely I was on the right track. Very cool. So I can, I can, you know, I can hear inside your voice uh, a different you coming out from the following point of view. You're so clear. You're so precise. You're still informative. You're still impassioned. You're not as driven. And I don't know if that's because you had a very amazing week in this with Anthony uh, Robbins or if uh, you're tired or if there's a part of you that just pauses to kind of assess what you're saying or where you're at, kind of soaking in your own wisdom that that comes out of your lips and looking back and saying it, because that's the way it's coming across. What do you think? Oh, thank you. I'm so pleased that you picked up on that, Dr. Carroll, because I know that you have very good intuition. It's interesting that you said that, not as driven, because um, one of the future books that I want to write is actually called Undriven. Hmm which is going to be my journey or my search to become undriven. <laughs> and and also in addition to that, a true unraveling of the traumas. Because here's the thing, that the trauma in my life has manifested in some say spinal deformities. So I have I had I had kyphosis which is a curvature in the upper back so when you see an older woman and she has that hump on her back that hump did not develop overnight it developed over decades of stress and heartbreaks and what happens is the human body begins to develop a posture of rolled shoulders forward which then begins to curve that spine backwards and it's in it What's happening is the posturing is to, it's a protective posture that protects the heart from being hurt. And so a couple of years ago, when I was at a 56-degree kyphotic curve, which is very serious, um, it meant I was going to have that hump back. And I began to unravel that by going through a couple of years of traction therapy, Well, what happens is as you begin to unravel that spine, as you begin to make that corrective posturing, it's like you're hitting a pinata because all of the emotional backlog of everything that that created the kyphosis in the first place begins to come out. It begins to unravel. And if you, you know, and this is why if we go through some sort of corrective therapy in our life, regardless of the regardless of whatever it is, if we don't go inside and heal the emotional trauma that caused it in the first place, then it will just manifest in some other sort of imbalance or disease or illness or whatever. You know, what just spontaneous came to my mind is in the process of healing these sorts of things and and letting them go, a, a funny, odd experience of absolute joy came over me. Was there ever a point in your journey and in the process of dealing with your back where as you were healing it that you kind of released 
released joy inside yourself? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the biggest moments of joy was just knowing that it could change because a lot of people believe that you can't fix kyphosis or that you can't um, heal from kyphosis. So one of the very empowering, joyous moments for me was when I actually saw the results and I was mesmerized by it. And then I met another young lady who was much younger than me. She was something like 23, and her kyphosis was just as serious as mine when I met her. And I told her about biophysics, and I told her about the therapy I was getting. And she was so happy because the same thing. She had been to all these doctors, and they all told her that there was no way to correct it. So you go on this journey in Peru, and this journey takes you to all these different dimensions. It shows you the potential for manifesting at different levels of rebirthing, of facing death and knowing you're, and, and coming back. And I don't know how that impacts your level of fear as well. And you have this sense of these things are possible, and yet you're not driven, but there's still possibility. So is the now the not driven but successful or now non-driven success, is it because all things are possible, but it's not on the fingertips of effort and strain and fear and blockage and overcoming and that sense of inevitable defeat if you don't keep running faster than the monsters behind you? How would you convert what I just said in your own experience? I would say that, you know, right again, you're you're so on point that it's almost as if there's been two people inside me all along or two distinct personalities that have been running the show. And one of these personalities is the tyrant. And the tyrant is the one that's driven by the fear. The tyrant is the one that constantly feels like she has to do, 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 in order to stay at the top. But there's this other there's this other part of me that is like the warrior woman, that's like the goddess, the all powerful feminine. And the thing is that that for all of this time I've let this tyrant be in charge. And the tyrant's great because she can get a lot of stuff done, right? She she can yes. solve problems, she can be really controlling, but but now I realize as much as I think I'm in control, I'm not in control of anything. Hmm. And Mother Ayahuasca showed me almost by laughing in my face to say, you think you're in control? We are going to beat you into submission, and you're going to see you're not in control of anything. You what? have to let us be in control, whatever us is, which I don't know the answer to that. But this other part of me is this very powerful spiritual warrior that has been waiting for me to let her be in charge. Hmm. So what I so my next steps and as we're going through this undriven is just like you said, put that faith, put that warrior, put that spiritual goddess, put that in charge instead of the fear. Because when I let the fear be in charge, the tyrant comes out and takes over. And, and you know, that tyrant is like this bowling ball that's just, you know, forcefully going down the lane and, and knocking over all the pins with, like, aggressive aggressiveness. But it's not necessarily in natural flow. So if I let the warrior woman be in charge, which still sounds aggressive, but it's just a, it's just a metaphor for how powerful she is, that if I let this powerful uh, being in charge, I really don't need to be driven by the fear or even driven at all. I can just, I can just be. Now, the warrior makes me think of a fighter, though, so that sounds pretty driven. So what's the difference between the way you're using the word warrior, who's a fighter, a doer, and saying that you're a warrior as a beer? Well, you know, when we think of the traditional warriors, like the ones that, like um, martial artists, you know, they're a warrior, but they're not 
they conserve their energy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. So when I say warrior, it's more of a metaphor of something that's very powerful without the aggressiveness. So another better word might be, um, I'm just not sure of a better word, because the way it was presented to me was warrior woman, but not the type of warrior woman that's like the head of a platoon that's out for blood. It's the warrior woman who is using universal power in order to manifest. You know what's coming to my mind is in my my book, uh, Paths to Recovery After Abuse and Trauma, I have a section that talks about the committee table and that inside, if you sit down at your own committee, this is your own company, your own committee, and you bring everybody that serves on your committee Every And you look around, and so let's say you have 10 people or 30 people or 50 people, but they're all part of this huge company called you. And you look around and you say to each and every one of them, you all serve a purpose and you all have value. And so here's the warrior, you're, you're defining it kind of a Taekwondo uh, approach to fighting, which is to use the energies of the other individual to create safety um, as opposed to aggression. And then you use the tyrant, then tyrant's in another spot of your your table, and you use all the different aspects of you that you discovered on your trip, in your trips and with ayahuasca's lead, et cetera, et cetera. The Anthony Robbins experience of the hot coals and coming, and you take all those different aspects of you, and you say, all of you have merit. I'm not going to get rid of any one of you. Not you, the tyrant. Not you the fearful little girl, not you, the one that feels abandoned, not you that protects my heart with, you know, shielding, shielding my vertebrae. I'm not going to get rid of any of you, but you all need to serve to the best of our overall functioning. You all have a place. You all have information. You all have wisdom. You all have skills. You all have tools. So I'm going to embrace you all and say, but nonetheless, we need to learn how to do this dance together, which means that not all of you need to be part of any one function, any one time. There's some of you that will collect over here and do that task at the IT department or over there in the financing or over there in the people management. Well, anyway, I kind of think that this is kind of an experience that you're suggesting that do you really want to get rid of the tyrant or do you want the tyrant in a place where it most optimally functions, whatever that is? Yes. We're going through a reorganization of the executive team. <laughs> yes, that's right. And since you're a businesswoman, you know exactly what that means. I think that individuals who have gone through abuse and trauma know that at their particular conference table, the, the parts of them that have experienced different types of trauma and abuse have to be present because embedded in their experiences are all sorts of wisdoms. Embedded in their experiences is the capacity to endure and to suffer and to look for ways of escape and ultimately to escape and survive. And there's merit in what they went through, lessons to be learned. But as soon as I say that I question my wisdom based on what you're saying and do and and are the parts of us that go through abuse and trauma really essential in our consciousness if they are cleaned out, if the cords are cut, if they're extracted. What is your take? Well, my my take is that every every experience has value and, and that there's definitely, you know, it's a human concept to, to assign something as good or bad, but truly everything is all mm-hmm. growth. And mm-hmm. that healing is, you know, right now the planet is healing. The communities are healing. The earth is healing. I mean, the rainforest itself is the lungs of our planet, and we've gotten to this this place of we've hit such a large capacity of destroying the earth, and that's reflected in our own, um, in the humans' emotional sicknesses that we've been going through. Because that I know of, there's never been a time throughout recorded history that there's been autoimmune you know or if it was it was very very rare and now we have an epidemic of it and we are we are altering the way that our that our genes express because it's a reflection of of how sick our planet is 
And so I believe that as each one of us learns to work with, learns to work with healing ourselves, learns to accept, accept what has happened to us and turn it around to where it's a part of our growth, that our story, the most powerful part of our story is in the moment that we moved on, that we're not only healing ourselves, but we're healing our other, you know, the, the ancestral portions of our family, the future, the future generations of our family, because when you truly heal, you show up differently in the world, and then now you're healing your planet. And I think that that's the biggest and the most important message right now. That's interesting because I would have thought that the most important message right now is that we are killing our our planet and that we are causing such pain and illness and disease and that we have to become conscious of that first before we become healers. I think maybe you've moved on beyond what I perceive the mass populace as. Um, your experience in ayahuasca sounds very, very healing and yet embedded in that was also some experiences of destructiveness, such as a thousand deaths or this very extreme pain that went on for some time. So it's an interesting idea that healing and destructiveness are almost uh, juxtaposed hand in hand. There was a definitely there was definitely a message of for me, and this does not, you know, because everyone's experience is different. When everyone's healing journey, whatever it looks like for them, it, it is not going to be the same as mine or anyone else's. And for me, it was definitely a message of the way through or the way to is through. The way yes. to, just like going right back to that metaphor of the inferno in the firewalk. The only way to get through to the other side is to go through. Mm-hmm. For me. That doesn't mean it would be the same for someone else, you know. Um, and even though my experience was not the most gentle one and it was uncomfortable, that's, that's very similar to how my journey through life has been. My journey through my first 40 years of life has not been graceful. It has not been a comfortable one. It has been definitely the, the classic hero's journey. And... Hmm. and I'm okay for that. I'm okay with that because I was built for it. I was given the gift of resilience. I was I was everything that I have experienced up until now was for a purpose. And even though some of these events sound scary, they also are are very beautiful because you know what? Having released that physical pain, um I might have had a temporary several hours of, you know, really excruciating pain for the pain to go away. And that's okay, and I'm okay with that. That's part of the healing. That's right. And as as far as like understanding understanding that um the healing of of mother earth, pachamama, gaia, I mean whatever words you choose to 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 say, um there is an intelligence that is in our earth that as as people we just this is not what we're taught about in school and right. you know and and let me just say for a moment that we i mean listen if i were to go ask 10 people at the grocery store right now who discovered america what are they all going to say all 10 of them columbus right and is that true no <laughs> no farthest right? thing from the truth Right. right. And then, you know, what's really funny is even those of us who know that's true are still likely to answer the question incorrectly because that's mm-hmm. how much these teachings, the installed belief system of when we went through our, the, you know, our childhood age schooling, those things are still in us. But there's an intelligence of the earth. And, you know, it's too bad that that's not what we're teaching in our, we're, we're teaching our children. But what I noticed is in Peru and in the Amazoni, Amazonian culture, and it's not just in the Amazon, but, you know, other indigenous cultures, when they're going through their years where they're growing up, that's what they're learning. And our earth, our earth, our mother earth is very intelligent. And the mother earth is going through a healing process. And part of that healing process is to shift the mindset of the humans that occupy the earth because that's very, very important. And so I guess I just 100% believe that the earth is healing and we and will heal and that as, an, as more and more human population wakes up to what's happening, that um, that is the process of healing 
for her, and that even the 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 um, resurgence of psychedelics, it's huge. And, and the amount of people who are called to ayahuasca, you know, they're being called for a reason. Hmm. I am loving this interview, Mary Shores. And I'm, I'm more uh, quiet and listening than I usually am. I usually interact. So I'm reflecting on each and everything that you're saying. Listeners, I hope you're reflecting as well. What is your life and what does this have to do with your own growth pattern and recovery? I don't know. And Mary, as we exit, what do you want to say to that experience of not knowing? Hmm. The experience of not knowing is, I think, very tied in with with surrender. And and it's okay to be scared. It's 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 absolutely okay to be afraid. It's absolutely okay to not know and to acknowledge that that it's a scary place and sometimes it can feel like you're in a dark hole, but part of the process of surrendering, you know, is allowing that lifeline to come down. Hmm. Because what if we can't receive the lifeline until we truly do surrender? And this warrior of yours, I wonder if her name is actually Hero, her O, and to the degree that any of us is, are needing to be heroes in our lives, and we're women, the he, her O, the amazingness of you, of who you are. Mary, you are an amazing individual, and you carry this truth, and you say it so that we all can tap into our own truths and hear our own voices talking to ourselves, and I so appreciate you doing that. Thank you for joining us. And listeners, there's no one path to recovery from abuse or trauma. That's why it's called Paths to Recovery. And here Mary Shores has provided yet an amazing understanding of a dynamic path, and actually many dynamic paths simultaneously. So contemplate, reflect. Move into that peaceful place inside of you, wherever that may be, where you take good care of yourself, and then decide when you get to that 13, how you move forward. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Dr. Carol. Cheers. Bye-bye, everybody. Enjoy. Enjoy.